0: Welcome, everybody. It's good to see you here. Uh, this is the last regular large group of the semester, uh, next week we'll be hearing from our seniors, sending them off. Uh, and yeah, so if you're interested in sharing, uh, shoot me a text and I'll add you to that group me. Uh, but excited to kind of close out the book of Exodus. Uh, but before that, I want to remind ourselves of what we say every week. Uh, we root ourselves uh, in God's posture towards us, and it shapes the way that our soul interacts with him and with each other. And so it's the same thing we say every time repetition uh, yeah, works it deeper and deeper into our hearts, helps us uh, grasp onto it, hold onto it more deeply. But well, We say it every week, so you could probably say it along with me, uh, but it says, uh, you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, and you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace just means that God, uh, his primary posture towards us is grace and love. He cares for us. Uh, this includes salvation, but it's also every good thing that we have from him. So when you think about how God relates to you in grace, we can think about the breath in our lungs. we can even think about the, maybe the job you got set up for after graduation, the internship for the summer. Uh, those things are God's grace to us. Uh, even his divine presence which is a lot of what we'll be talking about tonight in this passage. Uh, but before we dive into that, uh, let's pray together. And I'll pray for us. And I hope that you pray uh, for me, engage in prayer as well. It's not just me up here praying. Uh, but let's, yeah, let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we, we come here uh, yeah, expecting to meet with you, hopeful that we will, uh, longing to yeah, be shaped by your word, And what it has to say for our lives uh, in this moment, even though it was written so long ago. Uh, We pray that you would be present with us. Lord, for those who uh, are in a season of feeling you very close, uh, I praise you for that. Uh, For those of us who uh, maybe feel like you're farther away, I pray that maybe tonight in this moment you would uh, draw near. And make it very clear uh, that that you are near to us. Lord, I need your presence uh, to preach your word. I pray that it would do a work in my heart as well as in the hearts of all the students that are here. Uh, Lord, we love you. Uh, We praise you. And we pray all of this in your strong and your powerful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So we're at the very last passage in the book of Exodus, uh, which means that we're wrapping up. uh, But want to refresh ourselves on kind of the story so far. As well as recognizing the fact that in the I don't know 13 weeks or so that we've been preaching, we haven't touched every passage, so I'm going to fill in some of the gaps, kind of on a 30,000 foot level, flying over the story, Uh, kind of the beginning of it. We've got the the Israelites, the people of God, they're enslaved in Egypt, they're being oppressed by Pharaoh, uh, and they cry out to God, crying out for His help, for His deliverance, that He would kind of redeem them, save them, uh, yeah, bring them out of slavery. And God hears their cry and he calls Moses, who's the the main human leader, main human character throughout the book of Exodus. God calls him and he says that, Moses, I'm going to use you to bring the Israelites out of Egypt to guide them into the promised land. Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let God says to let his people go. Pharaoh's like, nope, nah, not going to do it. Kind of like having this slave force here. And then uh, God shows his supremacy over Pharaoh and all of the gods of Egypt throughout the plagues. And eventually Pharaoh relents and sends the Israelites away. God leads them out kind of this pillar of cloud and fire through the Red Sea. And then he eventually guides them to Mount Sinai, where he comes down in this uh, kind of miraculous smoke, fire, cloud on top of the mountain. And Moses goes into his presence and God gives him the the Ten Commandments. He gives him uh, a collection of other laws that kind of show God's heart, his purpose for the world, his purpose for the Israelites, and uh, kind of give the framework for human flourishing. And then in the the midst of those laws, there's uh, actually a couple descriptions of how to build this tabernacle, which is the tent of God's presence, uh, that would be in the midst of the Israelite camp, would guide them uh, as they would move from place to place. And uh, a little side note, the first person that the Bible says is filled by the Spirit of the Lord was uh, the interior designer of the tabernacle. So shout out to who He chose the right major in comparison to everybody else. Uh, yeah, but so, so it gets set up. They set up the tabernacle. Moses sets it up, kind of sets it apart as holy, For the Lord, and that's uh, right where we're at. He just finished the work. In the verse before our passage, it says, so Moses finished the work of setting up the tabernacle, of establishing it for the Lord, and that's where we get to our passage tonight. As we've been moving through the book of Exodus, each passage that we've engaged with, we've asked two questions about the passage. We've asked, who is God, and how should we relate to him? And those, the answer to those questions are deeply intertwined uh, as they are tonight. And they're just going to be the two things that we look at you know, for the rest of our time. We're going to see that God wants to be with his people and that we should want to be with God. So the two main things. So let's go. Well, look with me to verses thirty-five or 34 and 35, which say, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So here in these two verses, we have God's very presence filling the tabernacle. His glory fills the tabernacle. And glory can be maybe sometimes like a religious word that we don't really, we couldn't give a definition if we were like asked uh, but maybe you've been, maybe you've come to Redeemer where we're meeting and you've heard Matt Odom, the main pastor here, his definition of it, or you could even go up to his kids and ask them, hey, what, like, what does glory mean? What's glory? And they'll tell you it's the stuff of heaven. Another definition that I came across as I was studying for this passage is that glory is beauty on steroids. Or it's the manifestation of all that is good, true, and beautiful in all of its perfection without any hindrance or mar, any of those sorts of things. And so God's glory completely fills the tabernacle. And it's, it's so powerful that Moses can't enter in to the tent of meeting because it's filled with the presence, the perfect glory, everything good, true, and beautiful. It's full manifestation. And Moses can't enter in because he isn't perfectly good, true, and beautiful. But just like God gave the descriptions for how to build the tabernacle, how to set it apart for him so that he could dwell there. Uh, as we continue on in the story, we, he, he gives the kind of instructions for how Moses can interact with him, how he can enter into God's presence again. And that's kind of the whole book of Leviticus. As we see here, uh, Moses can't enter the tent of meeting, but you you go through the book of Leviticus, it outlines the sacrificial system and the role of the priest. And each of those things eventually find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Uh, But then you get to the the beginning of the book of Numbers, and a month has passed from this moment in Exodus, and Moses is able to enter the tent of meeting and hear uh, from the Lord. So that's what that is. Uh, But God so badly wants to be with his people that he gives the description for the tabernacle. He outlines how to relate with him, how to engage in his presence. And he empowers people all along the journey to do that. He empowers Moses to bring the law. He empowers Bezalel to furnish the tabernacle. He empowers the priests uh, and the sacrifices to draw people into relationship with him. Though so God wanted to be with his people uh, so badly that he manifests himself into the world that he created just because he couldn't help himself. I know there's, there's an author, some, maybe some of you have read some of her stuff, her name's Dorothy Sayers. She, uh, is the first, she was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. And she's uh, known, to, she's, she's written novels, and kind of essays, a number of plays, but what she's most well-known for is her collection of detective novels about Lord Peter Wimsey. And Lord Peter, he's just, he's this man, he's this aristocratic detective. And he's consumed by his work. Uh, he's good at his job, but he's also deeply lonely and filled with pain. And as you read through the stories in the middle of the series, there's a character named Harriet. Harriet Vane that's introduced And they fall in love, they get married, and they solve mysteries together. And we learn different things about Harriet along the way, too. We learn that she's a writer, that she writes detective fiction novels, and that she was one of the first women to graduate Oxford. Does that sound familiar at all? So Dorothy Sayers, she wrote herself into the story. She created this world, these characters, and she loved this world that she created. She loved this character so much that she entered into the story. She wrote herself in and she brings healing uh, and community and relationship to her character who's in such desperate need of that. And so she had started off, she was orchestrating the events from afar, and then she intimately enters in to the story. It's similar to what God is doing. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, he seems far off, but he's orchestrating the events. He's carrying his people along. And then he enters into the midst of the Israelites here, the center of their camp, the center of their lives, and lives with them day in and day out and shows his presence by this this cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. It's deeply present with his people. Now, some of you, uh, you might be feeling his deep presence. I know that I've talked to some of you and you've said, I've never felt closer to the Lord than I do right now. And I'm just so grateful that that's the case. Uh, I want to invite you to lean into that, to lean into his presence, to experience the richness of that, to remember it, to engage, to invite him into kind of the nooks and crannies of your life to experience him there too know that others of you might be on the complete other end of the spectrum're like I don't even know if God exists I don't even think he exists or maybe you think yeah he probably he, he might have created everything and then he just took a step back and doesn't really interact deeply uh, with with the world and our goings on uh, that's the case one I'm grateful that you're here because it takes a lot of humility to come to a place uh, where most people believe something different than you. Uh, I have much to learn from you, so I'd love to connect more deeply. But my bet is that the majority of us are somewhere in the middle between those poles. It's where I'm at. Uh, Maybe some of you have experienced God deeply in the past, but you don't really feel his presence right now at all. You've had rich experiences with him as you've grown up and you uh, wish that you could have, you wish that you had that always. You're wrestling with doubts, questioning. Uh, Yeah. I'm glad that you're here too. Connecting with people, engaging with these questions. Uh, But I, and I'm speaking to myself here uh, as I I talk to this group. I want us all to look at the world Uh, look at our lives with a curious eye, curious to see where God's presence and glory might be. And uh, I believe that we'll find him because the scriptures say that creation uh, testifies and shows the presence and the glory of God. Whether you hear the birds singing in the morning or maybe you're up late studying and you just need a breath of fresh air and you're, you're caught by the the vastness of space and the beauty of the stars there. You've had moments where you've seen the, just the greatness of a mountain or uh, just kind of been floored by the ocean and all of the diversity of life that just shows creativity. All of the creatures that fly in the air, swim in the seas or uh, go about on the land. These things testify and show God's presence in his glory his majesty and his power, Uh, but it's not just those sorts of things. Look to the relationships that you have in your life, especially those friendships and relationships with Christian people who have been shaped by God's love. Uh, But even in in any relationship, because God makes every human being in his image, you're going to get glimmers of him. We look to these relationships, and I want to encourage you to see even them as evidences of God's presence and glory in your life. Uh, Maybe see just a speck and to be like, oh, the Lord's here, at least in a little way. Uh, Because he gives us all of these evidences because he wants to be with his people. He gives us his spirit and when we receive Jesus and He's in there deep within us, whether we recognize it or not, whether we can feel Him or not, that all of this shows that God so deeply wants to be with His people. And now we'll look to the, the second part of the question, or the, the second question of how do we relate to God? in response to this. Uh, we'll look at that we should want to be with Him as well. So if you'd look with me to verses 36 through 38 close out the book which say throughout all their journeys whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle the people of israel would set out but if the cloud was not taken up then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up for the cloud of the lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of israel throughout all their journeys and so the presence of God is with the Israelites and it leads the Israelites. When he moves, they follow him. When he stays put, so do they. That's, that's what struck me most in studying for this passage. And at first, it doesn't seem all that weird. Maybe it doesn't seem weird to you at all. It makes a lot of sense that they would stay when he stayed and go when he went. Um, but what struck me was that they knew where he was going. They knew where he was going to lead them. He had told Moses, he had told the people that he was going to lead them out of Egypt into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of the Canaanites, the land that he had promised to their ancestors where they had lived before they came to Egypt. He wasn't like hiding the destination saying, you got to follow me to get there. Otherwise, you're not going to know the way. They knew where they were going and they likely would have known the straightest, most direct path to get there. Uh, But it's clear that as we continue on in the biblical narrative, God doesn't lead them on the straightest path. He doesn't go the shortest amount of time. Moving them there takes a long time for them to get to the promised land. Um, And there must have just been a reason why they didn't go there straight on their own. Now this, this group of Israelites, they had their fair share of bad moments. Uh, when they were wandering around the wilderness uh, between Egypt and the promised land. But I think that in their best moments, the reasons that they stayed and followed was because they wanted to be with God too. God wanted to be with them. They wanted to be with him. And that's why they didn't go off on their own. And this desire of wanting to be so near to God, to be with him all the time, uh, it reminds me of Lawrence and my dog, Indy. Some of you know him. He's a, uh, a he's so sweet. He's a 80 pound golden doodle. He's pretty big. And uh, he loves the things that we do. He loves going on walks. He loves toys. He's got a bunch of them. Uh, he loves playing with a ball out back. Um, but more than that, he loves being with us. You could say, no, we're not playing. You can bring a toy to me. and say, we're not playing right now, Indy. And he'll drop it and he'll be like, come on, maybe one more time. I'm like, nope, we're not playing. And then I'll just sit and lay down next to me. As I was writing this sermon the past couple of days, he was as close as he could be. I was in a chair at the kitchen table and he was leaning up against the chair laying down. He just wanted to be close. Uh, you can sit down on the ground and he'll curl up as a big 80 pound golden deuter in my lap. He just wants to crawl and get as close to me as possible. He just wants to be with, he wants to be with us. And, oh, good, I just wish I wanted to be like God, the way that Indy wants to be with people. I wish I wanted to be with God like that. But a lot of the time I care so much more about where I want to go and what I want to do than I care about just being with God. Maybe some of you can relate. I imagine I'm not the only one that that's the case for. But when we, when we think about that, I want us to ask, ourselves, what are we valuing more than being with God? What kind of metaphorical destination do you want to get to so badly that you're willing to go there even if God isn't leading, even if God isn't going there? Is it a career or a kind of like career path? Maybe you're a freshman and so you're like, I, like, I can't get my job right out of graduation right now. But I, can, I know I need to get this internship this summer. I need to work this job next year. I've got to fill up my resume. I've got to volunteer here so that I get into med school or can do this, that, or the other. And I'm going to do that no matter what. Nothing can get in my way. Even if God calls me somewhere else, I'm going that direction. For others of you, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you care more deeply about being with your boyfriend or girlfriend or significant other than you do about being with God. Maybe it's something else, but whatever, whatever it is, uh, we need to recognize where we set out on our own and we need to turn back to God. It's kind of the word repent. If you've heard that, it just means to turn, to turn about, to repent and turn back to God. And from my own personal experiences, I just know that when, I, when I've repented, when I have turned, when I've realized that I had set on my own and actually gotten pretty far, Down that path. When I've turned, I've seen him pursuing me, drawing me back to him, running to me, like taking me up in his arms. That I I don't have a long way to go to get back to him because he's coming. He's drawing me in. It's so good for us to realize, to recognize these places that we're going, these spheres of life where we want to do all of it on our own terms. It's good to recognize and to repent. Uh, but another thing that would be good and true and beautiful for us to do is to, uh, get, um, this will help us stop from leaving his presence in the first place, is if we, if we see him as more beautiful and glorious than the things that we're longing for. Even to see him as more beautiful than the promised land itself. To see the person and the presence of God as more beautiful and glorious than the pillar of the cloud over the tabernacle and the fire over the tabernacle, more beautiful than the tabernacle itself. Uh, In the descriptions of the tabernacle throughout Exodus and the temple later on in the story, uh, the... The images there, the carvings in the wood, uh, what's sewn into the, the tent coverings, call, make calls back to Eden, to the Garden of Eden. There's this golden lamp stand that's kind of described like the tree of life in there. Points back to Eden where God was present with Adam and Eve before sin, when everything uh, was, was as it should have been. No. But the, tab- the tabernacle also points forward. Points forward to God dwelling with his people. In the person of Jesus, the opening of the the first uh, chapter in the Gospel of John talks about Jesus, the word taking on flesh and dwelling with his people, and that Greek word uh, it can be translated tabernacling. It's the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's like, uh, and the word took on flesh and tabernacled among his people. So the tabernacle points forward to Jesus. And, and when we see Jesus, we see God wrote himself into the story again. He wanted to be with his people so badly that he wrote himself into the story again. But, but that moment was not the end of the story. It continues on. The end of the story, we flip back all the way to the last page in the Bible, to the end of Revelation, uh, eternity is depicted as a place where God's Perfect glory dwells all over creation and where his people share with him in that glory. Uh, Sin and death, they no longer exist. He's defeated them. And to signify all of this, a voice cries out from the throne of God. And it says, behold, the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God the whole story, all of history, it culminates in God being with his people and his people being with him in perfection, in glory, in everything that is good, true, and beautiful, on full display, nothing to cover it up, nothing to mar it, nothing to contaminate it. But to get to that that end of the story, there's a hinge in the story. And that hinge is when God wrote himself into that story, that middle time in Jesus. That he wrote himself into the story uh, because it takes God himself to live a perfect life, to die, pay for all of the sin, defeat death in his resurrection. That's the hinge point of this story that allows us to go from where we're at in Exodus forward to eternity. It takes God himself dying and resurrecting and drawing us up into fullness of life with him. He's done all of this because he wants to be with his people. And if we see him as that, we see him as good, true, and beautiful. All of, all of everything else that life can offer, everything else that we can go off on our own directions without him, all of those things just pale. They fade into the background. They're not as beautiful. They're not as true. They're not as good. Our hearts won't long for those things anymore. We'll long for communion with God And that's beautiful because he wants to be with us and he makes a way for us to be with him. So in response to that, we rejoice now, we grow in our love for him, our longing for him as he is with us and we are with him more and more and more. These things become more and more true in our own hearts, in our communities and in our world. And that's beautiful. And it points to the end of the story where all of that will be true. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, your story is beautiful. Uh, you draw near. You can't help uh, but enter into your creation uh, because you love it and you love us. And you so badly want to be with us, with your people. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the ways in which you're near. Uh that you would open our eyes to the sea, see the places where we have gone far off. And that you would draw our hearts back to you. That we would turn to you and see you uh, running, pursuing, drawing us back to you. Uh, to the place where yeah, true beauty and goodness exists. I pray that you would do that quickly and often. And that you would grow in us the desire never to leave in the first place. Lord, we, uh, we need you to do all of that, and we long for eternity, uh, where we won't need to do that anymore because we will be with you. Your dwelling place will be with us. You will be our God, and we will be with you. Oh Lord, we love you. We pray all of these strings, th- all of these things, in your name. Amen.